This morning, I'm going to speak to you uh, from a very uh, interesting passage of Scripture, actually a couple of passages of Scripture. And uh, we're going to prepare for um, a time of ministry at the end around the Lord's table. And last week, we talked about the first day of the week and its significance in our lives, uh, in the lives of the early church. And uh, we're going to um, uh, share about that again today. Now, a couple of announcements to make prior to that. Next, um, first of all, um, Brother Emmanuel, uh, many of you know Dr. Emmanuel. He has a a financial need right now of $2,830 to be able to enroll in a program for his uh, getting his Canadian license as a physician. And so uh, I said we would we would look after him. And uh, if you'd like to help me do that, you could uh, see me at the end of the service or you could put a, a little slip in the in the in the offering when it goes by that you can help at a later date and put down the amount. And uh, we want to uh, make sure that he gets the help that he needs for that. Uh, Also, next Sunday morning, uh, CBC will be here with a camera crew to uh, film our service. And so um, that's not an invitation to stay away. It's an invitation to show up. (laughs) And and we want to have a full house next Sunday, invite some friends, bring them here. Uh, They have shifted their emphasis from doing something on the Fifth Estate to doing something on the national news. Um, The story has grown in their minds. And uh, central to that story, or a big part of that story, is this church. So uh, sometime in January, and it always keeps changing (laughs) when I talk to them, it seems that uh, there's never a a set date for something to be done. But uh, I've been told that in January, the National will be running the story about Gospel Phrasia. And if you need more information about that, I will be happy to provide you with that. So next Sunday, uh, let's come, let's be here early. Let's fill this house with praise. I don't want you to be bound up. Do you know what that means? How many knows what it means to be bound up? You see, some people say, you know, I don't don't like it when people lift their hands in praise. It's too expressive. It's too uh, hard. I just like to worship the Lord in my own way. And you watch them, and they're like this. And so how is that worshiping the Lord in your own way <laughs> when you're criticizing somebody else for the way they worship? How many know that this is a house of freedom? I don't. This is a house of freedom. Because when Jesus sets us free, we are truly free. So when we, when we are free, we shouldn't act as if we're bound. Does that make sense? Especially when CBC is here. (laughs) All right, this is an interesting story. Let me set it up for you. Um, Paul, the apostle, was on his way to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, and he knew 
that many of the churches that he had established all up through the um, Macedonia and other parts of the then known world, that he would never see them again because once he got to Jerusalem, he was going to be arrested, he was going to be bound, he was going to be sent to Rome to be uh, judged, and eventually he would be executed, and so he would never see his friends again. So in the book of Acts chapter uh, 20, there's a, a beautiful passage. It's one of the most wonderful, heartwarming passages of the relationship between a spiritual leader and his church uh, that you'll see anywhere in the Bible. And you see there the tenderness of Paul, and it's, he's called the Ephesian elders to come. Now the Bible says he, he, they were sailing, and he sailed past Ephesus because he knew if he stopped at Ephesus, he probably they would just probably keep him there because they loved him so much. He had started the church in Ephesus, and by this time, just this few years later, he'd only been there for about three years uh, when he started the church. There was about ten to twenty-five thousand members of the church. Nobody knows the exact amount, but it was huge. And so he knew that if he went there, and they knew this was his last visit, uh, they would protest and say, no, Paul, you shouldn't do this. Don't go to Jerusalem. Don't let them arrest you and take you to Rome. And they were begging him. And he knew that if he ever stopped at Ephesus, it would be a very hard thing. So what he did was he sent for the Ephesian elders to come and visit him where he was. He was traveling down the coast. And so in Acts, Acts chapter 20, you see this beautiful passage of how he talks to the Ephesian elders. And based on that passage, you get so many powerful principles of what church is about, of what it means to be the body of Christ, of what it means to fulfill the mission of Christ in the world. It's, it's just an amazing passage, and I love to read it. Uh, I love going back to it. But before that passage starts. It starts in verse 13 of chapter 20. We have this very interesting other story. And you can put it up here. It's, oh, you have it there. I'll say, on the first day of the week, notice the first day of the week, sometimes referred to as the Lord's Day. It was uh, the Apostle John that coined the phrase the Lord's Day. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Now, Paul is in Troas at this time. So here is the communion service. The coming together on the first day of the week to celebrate the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, by this time, a few years would have passed since Jesus actually died and rose from the grave. But here is this amazing, amazing emphasis on the communion, on focusing on the death and resurrection of Jesus. And our, our whole identity as a church is based upon that truth. And we need to remind ourselves again and again of the reality of what he did on the cross and what it means that he's alive, and because he's alive, we too are alive. So this became the focus of the early church, the first day of the week, the important day for worship, for breaking of, of, of bread. Now, Paul knew this was his last visit here at Troas. So he spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. 
I thought we would experiment and see how that would work. I don't know if I could make it from now till midnight. Um, but imagine if it was my last time to ever see you again. And uh, I, I was standing in front of you to express my heart in terms of what I feel is most important for the church. I, I, I could talk for a long time, I'm sure. I don't know that I'd make it to midnight. And there were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting, so lamps give off heat. And seated in a window was a young man named Graham, uh, Uticus. Uh, I asked him if he would consider doing this part, and he said that if we acted it out, he said he could, he thought he would. And he was sinking into a deep sleep. All right, did you, not, did you all notice? He was sinking it. <laughs> As Paul talked on and on. And some of you might say, well, Bruce, we think you could do that too. And when he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. All right. So, he wasn't an old guy that fell asleep, like you would think would be easier for old guys in church. He was a young guy. Maybe he stayed up too late at night, the night before. doesn't say that. But uh, whatever it was that made him tired and, fell as and, and to fall asleep, he fell asleep. And he falls out of a room, the room where they're in, this warm room with all the lamps and Paul going on and on. It's midnight, and he falls to the ground dead. All right, what kind of a feeling would come into the house? It was really, you know, what would happen if one of us fell dead in the middle of a service? Uh, it would be hard to carry on the service. It would take the focus of our attention, for sure. Well, let's go to the rest of the, of the passage. And uh, Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. So, uh, here's this miracle that takes place. He's picked up dead, and Paul goes down and throws himself on the man. Um, and then he says, don't, don't anybody panic. Don't be afraid. Don't, don't be alarmed. Uh, he's alive. Now, if somebody died in church this morning, I'm not looking for a volunteer or anything, uh, but if somebody did and they were pronounced dead, uh, Dr. Chuck, who, uh, you know, uh, Elisha, somebody, a, phys a physician that could verify that he was dead or she was dead, uh, said it's too late, the person is gone. And then um, one of us laid down on top of the person 
We don't know what the person said. We don't know what happened, what decree or declaration he made in the name of Jesus, uh, do not die but live or rise from the dead. We don't know what was said. All we know is Paul laid himself on top of the person and he was picked up alive. Now, how would we feel in the church if that happened? I would think we would call the worship team together, and they might be too just overwhelmed to do it. We might not even need a worship team. There would be jubilation. There'd be dancing. There'd be praising. We'd say, let's call the newspaper or the TV group or the radio. There's a miracle here. Somebody who's dead is alive. Somebody was raised from the dead. Well, what's that in keeping of? What was the church so accustomed to celebrating? Well, it was accustomed to celebrating the resurrection from the dead. And so it was obviously the worship of Jesus because he died and rose again. But flowing out from his death and resurrection comes the miracle power of God that made it so that this didn't even surprise the church. Hmm. So what do they do? It doesn't say there was any big jubilation. Well, there probably was some, uh, no doubt. But uh, Paul uh, then uh, said, uh, it says, then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. So it's like somebody's raised from the dead in the church, and I said, folks, let's come and have communion. Uh, well, well, Bruce, don't you see what just happened? Let's let's wait for a while. Let's do it the next service. This is so amazing. But the power of the breaking of bread, the drinking of wine that represented the death and the resurrection of Jesus was always uppermost on the minds of the early church, even in the face of what we would call a remarkable miracle. So, uh, and after talking until daylight, all right, midnight for me would be more than a stretch, but to start now and finish at daylight tomorrow morning, six o'clock, seven o'clock, that's more than a stretch. But he talked until daylight, and he left, and the people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. So what was uppermost in the, the minds of the early church when they came together? This is an example. And, and again, as in the accounts of the four gospel writers about the resurrection of Jesus and their emphasis on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. Uh, all of the different stories of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all emphasizing it was the first day of the week. It was the first day of the week. It was the first day of the week. And so we get this powerful infusion, an injection into our hearts and minds that the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, is a vitally important day for the church. And now here on the first day of the week, Paul is saying goodbye to the church of Troas. And this amazing miracle 
takes place and two things are emphasized for that day. The breaking of bread and the preaching of the word of God. That's the context. That's the context. What happens in that context is the raising of a dead man back to life again. Church, hear me. Hear me very carefully. In our modern Christian experience, we look for the miracle instead of the context. That happens over and over and over again. People will travel to miracle meetings here and there, and they're not interested so much in the breaking of bread and focusing on Jesus and his death and his resurrection. That's not the primary focus. It's about a miracle, what God will do, what this prophet will prophesy over me. And in so doing, we miss what is the heart and soul of the life of the church, and that's the word of God and the breaking of bread and the drinking of wine and celebration of Jesus who rose from the dead. Worship begins with the word. Not with a song, not with a dance. It begins with the word. Worship is centered around Jesus his death and his resurrection, the miracles, the praying for the sick. That happens, and we're called to do that, and we're called to prophesy. We're called to, uh, to celebrate all of the wonderful blessings of God. But don't lose the context. And if and Paul, as he's preaching for the last time, and goes all the way till the next morning, what was he talking about? What did he constantly say? Did he have to convince them that miracles were possible? They just witnessed one, and they knew very well that miracles happened all the times, all the time. But what was important? The focus on Jesus. He was what we refer to theologically as Christocentric, centered on Jesus. The church must be centered on Jesus, not its programs, not all of the things that we do and celebrate. And Yes, those are all an important part of congregational church life, but they're not the center points. Uh, my dear, it's quiet in here this morning. Um, can somebody say amen? Amen! Oh, wow. You are there. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm going to turn you now to uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 16. And here's what Paul says. Now, about the collection for the Lord's people. Uh, so now he's, he's instructing them about tithes and offerings. And notice how it's worded. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do on the first day of every week. Each one of you should set aside a sum of, a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collection will have to be made. Hmm. 
So, on the first day of the week, each one of us should set aside a sum of money according to our income. Uh, the Bible teaches the tithe, and the Bible teaches the offering. Why the first day of the week? Uh, there's times that I uh, don't get my tithes in until Monday, which is the second day of the week. So I, should I wait till the next Sunday, the first day of the week? Is it absolutely essential that it, when you bring an offering to the Lord, that you do it on the first day of the week, and if you missed it, wait until the next first day of the week? Uh, does it mean that? Why does it say, on the first day of the week? The reason isn't so much, in fact, I don't think it has anything to do with uh, what day we give. It has something to do with something more than that. It's We set it aside on the first day of the week, and we give it at whatever day um, the opportunity arises. But here's what, the, what is being taught. The offering is tied into the resurrection and the death of Jesus Christ. It's a part of what was essential to the first day of the week and all that that day represented. So, do what I told the Galatian churches. He said, this was not just a one-off thing for a specific need that the Corinthian churches was called upon to respond to. This was something that he taught other churches. He was saying that essential part and parcel of the Christian experience is the tithe and the offering, and it should be a weekly response. Now, obviously, today, uh, some people get paid every two weeks and, and some once a month. Some, if you're in business, you don't actually do a drawdown from your business until maybe you know, months can go by. So those, that isn't the issue. What is the issue is that your tithe and your offering is connected with the cross and with the resurrection of Jesus. Um, Last night I was sitting home in my ch chair and I, I didn't come to the prayer meeting. I just wanted to rest and meditate on this morning. And I turned to Marlene and I said, um, I've never seen this before. I've preached this before, but I've never seen it before. That the tithe and the resurrection are interlinked. The first day of the week part of coming together, sanctifying this day. It's not a day for just any old activity at all. It's not a day for going here or going there or just doing whatever. Primary and central to the Christian faith is to set aside this day for the worship by God's people to the Lord, essential because it is celebratory of the death and resurrection of Jesus and all that is connected with it. In our society today, in the church, we've lost a lot of that. If there's a big hockey game or there's a big Super Bowl game coming up and people, in order to get to the venue where they're going to watch it, have to skip church, 
uh, and I'm not saying that we want to be religious about this or make it a legalistic thing. What I'm saying is there's a spirit, and it's the spirit of the Lord, that so wants to capture our hearts and minds that we won't compromise what is so central to Christian worship in the New Testament. And that's the first day of the week of what, of what it represents and how important it is, how essential it is to the life of the church. Wow. Hmm. Uh, young people, you may not have had the teaching of our, the elders here, the, old, the elderly, the older than you among us. <laughs> I get that right sometime or another. Uh, but uh, the first paycheck you get, the first allowance you get that your parents give you, Learn to tithe, because you're not doing it as something, boy, I, I have to do this, I have to do this. But there is a spiritual connection to the cross and to the resurrection when you learn the principle of the tithe. And the tithe isn't just any amount. The tithe is 10%. So when you get a job, if you say, well, I'll wait until I'm rich, or I have big income, or I've gone through college or university, or I've a trade, and I can have lots of money, then I'll start to consider the tenth. No, it's a seed. And when you plant that seed when you're young, you will prosper in the kingdom of God with the blessing of God upon your lives in ways that otherwise you would not experience fully. <laughs> so, uh, what we find when we come into the book of Hebrews is that, uh, and I don't have these scriptures there, but if you want to put them up, you can. I'll tell you, um, I'll tell you where, the, where they are. It's in um, Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, and, it, and Hebrews chapter 7 describes what happened back in Genesis chapter 14. And in Genesis chapter 14, there was this first patriarch of the nation of Israel, the man Abraham. And Abraham was a man who trusted God explicitly. He had his lapses along the way, but he is called and referred to in the Bible as the father of those who are faithful, and literally meaning full of faith. Their trust is in the Lord. And so Abraham was a man of <laughs> great trust in God, was willing to lay down his life for God, and God prospered him abundantly. He, he was an extremely wealthy, wealthy man. And, and uh, he had learned that the things that had happened to him when it came to his prosperity was a direct result of his being obedient to the call of God in his life. Now, there was a big battle that happened, and uh, it was between four kings and five kings, and Abraham wasn't involved in it. He didn't want to go to war, but he learned that his nephew was held captive uh, uh, by an opposing army, and Abraham said, I'm going to go rescue my my nephew, Lot. And so he allied himself with four of the kings, and he went out and he totally destroyed the enemy. And he was come on his way back, 
and he comes uh, across this town called Salem, which in the New Testament, or didn't have to wait till the New Testament, eventually became Jerusalem. And he sees this person coming, and the person is a priest who was never born and who never died. And his name was Melchizedek. Melchizedek was not his last name and Mel not his first. That was his name, Melchizedek. All right? So Melchizedek comes to him and he has bread and wine. So we see in the Bible the very first communion service. And it was conducted by a priest who was never, did not have human birth and never had an end of his life. And in Hebrews chapter 7, we find out that that's Jesus. So Jesus appears away back in the Old Testament to Abraham. And Abraham receives this bread and wine. Not sure if he knew what it meant, but he broke bread and drank wine with this priest. And his response was to give a tithe of everything he had. Now, along comes the king of Sodom, where uh, Lot had lived. And Sodom comes along, or uh, the king of Sodom comes along, and he says, uh, Listen, man, we owe you an incredible debt of gratitude. We'd be toast if it wasn't for you. So here, take the spoils. We want to bless you with money and wealth and the spoils, the things that came. And he said, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't want any of it. You keep it. Now, I have some servants who deserve to have some of their money restored to them, and you can give to them, but I don't want anything it comes from you. Now, the reason for that, Abraham saw that his sole source in life for blessing, for prosperity, for good, was not from a king or an authority of this world, but from the king who is the king of righteousness, the king of kings. Amen. God help us. To have that kind of perspective that whenever we sojourn through this world, as we come to tomorrow and the next days and the days to follow, that our fixation when it comes to the source of life and the one to whom we devote our life and to whom we're responsible to please with our life, Jesus and no one else. Well, let's go to Hebrews. Uh, verse 4. Just think how even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now, the law requires... The, oh, I did mention that Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, didn't I? Did I say that? Okay. He gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now, the law requires that descendants of Levi who became priests 
to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they are descendants from Abraham. Now, you have to follow the logic here. Uh, Once the law came, which was 430 years after the story of Abraham and Melchizedek, once the law came through Moses, part of that law was the tithe. And you tithe through two of the... Uh, family lines of the 12 tribes of Israel, two of those tribes, Aaron and Levi. And so Levi was one of the tribes that all of the men were priests. And so they uh, tithed to Levi and gave their tenth. But, and so every priest said, you owe me a tithe because my dad, my great-granddad or whatever was Levi or Aaron. And so by your descendancy, you lay claim to the tithe because you were a priest. And, and it says, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Now, I haven't got time to explain all this, but we'll notice this. In, in the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die. But in the other case, by him who is declared to be living, one might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. Now, that's quite, a, quite an argument to make, quite a, a logic. A Levi, who became a priest, 430 years later, after Abraham, you could say, well, Levi was just, you know, he was still in the loins, is one of the expressions of Abraham. It was going to be several generations later before the Levitical priesthood was born. But because he would be from the from Abraham, it would, it, the argument is that 430 years ago, when Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, in a sense, Levi who wasn't born, but would be born from him one day, was already paying tithes to Jesus, to Melchizedek. Listen, when you tithe, you're not just worshiping the Lord your God yourself, but even if you haven't given birth to a child yet, but someday you will, for every spiritual child you bring into the kingdom of God through your witness, there is a promise, there is a, there's a principle that your children are blessed by your tithe. And if you have a child today who's not serving God, but you taught them the principle of the tithe, you practiced the tithe, you, you sowed into their lives in a ways you could not have imagined you were doing when you were just filling out your tithe envelope. God saw it, and he remembers it. And the promise to the believer is still yes and amen. He will honor you for the giving that you've given to the kingdom of God because you've done it on the principles of Abraham, the principles of faith, that you have one source and no other. And that's Jesus. Oh, my. Um, Let's... Let's wind this up here. Uh, If you want to, you can go down to verse uh, 
Uh, 15, are you actually being able to track? Yeah, wonderful, thank you. And what we have said is even more clear. If another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation. My dad, my great, 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 great dad was Levi, therefore I'm a priest by regulation. Regulation as to ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Well, so in the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die. But in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. Let every one of you, on the first day of the week, lay aside in proportion to what God has given you, your tithe, your offering. Let that be part and parcel, not of some legalistic obligation. The pastor might not think well of me or who, whatever. Uh, Forget any of that. It's not about what I think or what somebody else thinks. It's about your worship to the Lord. It's about your covenant connection with he who is the king of righteousness, the king of Salem. And that goes back into Genesis 14. King of righteousness, the king of peace. Salam means peace. Uh, He is the king, and it's about your relationship with him, your worship response through the tithe to he who is a priest forever, a priest who collects tithes in the natural, but whose life is not dependent upon the natural. He'll never die. He lives forever. Listen. I don't know where this expression came from. It just came into my mind, but it may not be. It may be a little bit crude, but whatever. If you're going to hitch a ride to anybody, hitch it to Jesus, because we all are connected to something that we consider our source, one way or the other. Worship team, would you come, folks? From what we've read this morning. Uh, You cannot separate the cross, the resurrection, and all that it means from the tithe or from the first day. The first day of the week, the day in which we come together according to the patterns of the New Testament, a special day. The tithe that shows that our dependence is not on um, anyone or anything but the Lord. And by the way, you don't get to choose how you spend your tithe. In the principles of the Bible, you'll never find that the tithe was spent 
uh, according to the will of the person. The tithe was of the giver. It's always given to others to determine. That's why there's a separation between the concept of the tithe and the offering. The offering you get to choose where you where you where it goes. But the tithe is given to others to determine. In Romans, Paul talked about the responsibility that we have when it comes to a body of believers to share the load of the work of the kingdom of God and to do it through giving, through our financial giving. Now, that's not the only way, of course. Prayer and and uh, working and so many other ways of support are vital. But he was referring specifically to finances when he said that. And uh, so, ushers, would you be prepared to receive the morning tithes and offerings? And uh, I know a lot of you don't give in the offering plate. You give through Interac or... and. Uh, uh, or uh, free transfer um, and that's wonderful that's fine it's not the, the exact method it's the fact that we give so you might not actually have anything to put into the, literally to put in the offering plate this morning but you've already given the principle is that you connect it with what Jesus has done on the cross for us as a part of your worship so let us uh, give and uh, go ahead and lead us, uh, Ira. 